Yo, what's the deal, baby? This your boy, Uncle Luke, formerly of the Two Live Crew. You are listening to Pass It Down with Mike Silver and Natalie Silver. Natalie is the most beautiful young lady in this deal right here. Mike doesn't look so good, even though they're dad and daughter. It's the big show, baby. All right, well, this is an epic moment because I have two dear friends who also happen to be really, really important right now um, as they are at the forefront of the fight against COVID-19 and, um, you know, the treatment and everything associated with that. So Natalie and I have a ton of questions. We have Dr. Gregory Hoon. Uh, infectious disease expert out of Chicago, Cook County Health and Hospital System, um, has experience with the CDC, uh, epidemiology, a pro- associate professor at Rush Medical, Rush Medical College, and, um, you know, a guy who is going in every day and, and treating patients, and the great Dr. A.J. Narula, who is the vice president of immunology at Eli Lilly. A lot of experience in rheumatology and other uh, really important medical areas. And uh, they've not only been both trying to solve this uh, separately, but I know they've tried to put their heads together as well. So uh, thank you guys both for being here. Hey, Mike, incredible intro. You know, I, I didn't even get the request for the CV. So if you're doing that from muscle memory, very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks Everyone, for having us, Mike. <laughs> I mean, usually I just go, this is my friend Greg. So I, I, I had to like beef it up a little bit. Um, yeah, you got, you, you got the name my mom calls me too. You know, some people <laughs> use Greg Hewn as one word, but uh, – but very nice. Much appreciated. Yeah, that is true. And more importantly, uh, thanks. Good to be with both Mike and Natalie because uh, myself, Mike and Natalie, we have a unique chemistry together. When we watch football games together, Cal tends, tends to do pretty well, right? So We have uh, we have had some unbelievable moments. And the last game we attended back in November of 2019 was a, a blessed occasion. But um, a lot has changed since then. Yes, yeah, I mean, 2009 was our baptism, and yes. I really feel like, well, we'll talk about it later. We have we have other things to address. Um, exactly. Thanks for doing this, you guys. I'm sure there's nothing else you could be doing to help the world right now, but <laughs> this is important, too. Um, so I guess we'll just start out. Let's bring it into the present. I mean, I know a conversation a lot of people are having in their homes right now, a conversation we've had in our home plenty of times in the past week or so is about um, the protesting going on nationwide. I think all 50 states, unless I saw 18 countries, it's really taking over the world, which is great to see. Um, And we just came from one this morning, but it was definitely something that had a conversation preceding it. We were really intentional about it. And I think that probably most people going out there too are you know, aware of the fact that we're also in a global pandemic and everyone, almost everyone I saw at the protest we were at um, was wearing a mask. I saw some people in gloves, but obviously um, everyone was in super close contact and kind of smushed together. And so I know talking to my friends and just kind of seeing online and on social media, um, there is some question as to 
how this will affect pandemic numbers. Um, and I don't know. I just I'm wondering what you guys think of that. Is there is there a difference in being close to people outside versus inside? Or do you guys anticipate any spike? Hey, Natalie, you know, first, um, thanks for standing up for the righteous fight. Um, it's very important that, you know, we have all generations that stand together. You know, I do want to say, and we need to recognize that, and you've, you know, you've thrown out the right terms, you know, pandemic, uh, epidemic, you know, we're really in a syndemic. And I, and I think what you're pointing towards is that, you know, this is a, a concurrent or an aggregation of clashing epidemics, crushing epidemics of COVID-19, poverty, and racism. And when you have a syndemic such as this, it really exacerbates um, really the burden of, of disease and the burden of the problem overall uh, as we look at the, the second and third factors with racism and poverty. And so just to get back to your point, you know, what does it mean to, you know, as, as, as we exercise our rights now to, to really fight um, against these important epidemics of racism and poverty, what will it mean for COVID-19? And I think that, you know, we may see it, unfortunately, uh, a trickle of, of new cases just because the social distancing is such a difficult task um, in, in, in the streets, basically, during these protests. And, you know, I think we can do our best, try to do our best for social distancing. I, I, I've seen it in, in some of these, you know, in some of the areas, some of the regions, but, but it is, it, it, it's a tough thing to pull off. And, and I think, you know, because of COVID-19 as really a vicious virus, um, we haven't really, I mean, we haven't, we don't have effective therapies quite now. I mean, Dr. Narula is, is really at the forefront of the vanguard in, in developing both prevention and therapeutics. Uh, and hopefully we'll get there sooner, you know, than, than we would in other spaces where we've been confronted uh, with these types of viral challenges. But, um, but until we get there, I think we do have to be really careful. And, and as we enter in what's called phase three, you know, we've kind of worked, we're, we're, we've kind of flattened the curve, I guess, in, in many places. And we've seen a down, uh, uh, a downslope of cases, um, less admissions to the hospital, less people that I'm taking care of, you know, in the ICU. Um, and so now in, in the recovery phase, as we sort of reopen up, I think we really have to be careful to, to maintain the social distancing and the protest, again, kind of put us in a rough spot for that. So if we have an uptick of cases, you know, I think that's just a, a, a consequence that um, it, it, it's going to be a struggle to one, if that takes off, we're, we're going to kind of be back to, to where we were. And, and maybe that second wave, uh, the second bump up in cases would come sooner than we'd want. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, uh, you, you covered it really well. I mean, it's it's great to hear in, in the midst of, of this good cause and, and the protests out there that, Natalie, you were seeing a good amount of social distancing and hopefully people wearing masks. And it probably does help to be outside. Um, I mean, the future is a little bit uncertain with this pandemic. There's, there's a long way to go. Um, it's good to see in some areas things are quietening down. And that's what we're hearing as we talk to some of the hospitals. But there clearly are new hotspots and probably the big picture of the, the country opening up in some places, um, you know, and larger groups of people congregating, we are going to see some impact. Um, the first wave of the pandemic, I think the planet was unprepared. Um, I think we're, um, things have improved since then. And, um, 
we're in a better place to test people. And, you know, hopefully we will have some some therapies in the not too distant future. I think uh, we're working hard on those. It's, it's great for to see the great collaboration across the the world and the scientific community. So uh, um, for me, for me, myself, you know, to be able to collaborate with the great scientific minds, including Dr. Hewn on this call and to collaborate in thinking about, uh, you know, uh, the virus, how do we combat it? How do we do these clinical trials? That's, that's an important thing that's going on right now. It's an incredible time of collaboration right now. Um, I, you know, you guys are at the forefront of this. Could you just give me a quick breakdown of the treatments that, have had an effect already and that we're hoping can be a factor in this, you know, in, in as close to the near future uh, as possible. And, you know, I know there's one um, hydroxychloroquine that has been heralded by uh, one prominent American who said he took it. And uh, um, you guys, I know, collaborated on remdesivir, which which I think has had more clinically promising results, but just take us through, you know, the, the basics of that. So you mentioned hydroxychloroquine. First of all, there, there are no approved treatments uh, for COVID-19. Actually, Japan did approve remdesivir as a fully licensed and indicated drug for SARS-CoV-2. That's actually the, the virus. Um, and then the infection is COVID-19. Um, and here in the U.S., we have two drugs that are under what's called emergency use authorization, meaning in in a, in a state of, of emergency, of uh, public health emergency, that these drugs can hopefully become widely available before fully licensed. And so the first was hydroxychloroquine, and that was really based on very minimal, sketchy data uh, first coming out of France. And, and now as we see more and more trials being done, not necessarily trials, but what we call observational types of, of clinical studies, meaning that it's not a controlled environment. It means that the drug is being used in some people and not being used in others, but it's not randomized. Um, it then is examined um, uh, in totality when you have a certain amount of time with people either on the drug or off the drug. And, and hydroxychloroquine really, unfortunately, hasn't shown to be effective. And, and it, there may be some harms, at least um, with, with um, heart uh, or, car- or cardiac toxicity. And, uh, and AJ actually you know, as, as a rheumatologist, he's used tons of hydroxychloroquine in, uh, in his field. And it's an interesting drug um, from an infectious disease standpoint where it, it may sort of build up the acid in certain microbes to then disable their ability uh, to replicate or to duplicate or accelerate in the body. But for SARS-CoV-2, it just really hasn't panned out. We're still looking at it. So remdesivir, Mike, as you mentioned, is the other drug. And that's actually a direct antiviral. So that directly inhibits the abilities of the, of the drug to, to use its own uh, enzymes or proteins to, to accelerate at very high numbers within the body. And, and we have seen – it's not a magic bullet. You know, um, it's you know, perhaps uh, you know, more of a base hit, maybe a double – um, in some patients uh, with uh, moderate or severe um, COVID infection. So that's really the, the landscape as we stand right now that's actually available to patients, you know, as we, as we treat them uh, in, in the hospital setting. Uh, remdesivir is, is really reserved for those patients with, with severe disease. There's other types of um, medications that we've used in other disease states, and, and AJ is very familiar with them, and they they use certain 
factors involved in the immunologic response or the, or the uh, antibody or immune responses that we generate to, um, to foreign invaders or infections. And we still don't have the, what we call the, you know, the, the most pristine data to say if those really work or not. So we're, um, you know, we're in the ramp up stage to in, in what's in drug discovery to really try to find uh, either the right drug or the right combination of drugs uh, where, you know, we have a, let's say a therapeutic counterattack against uh, SARS-CoV-2 or, or COVID-19. And so, you know, AJ again is, has, um, he's taken the lead in, in, in some of these very, what, what may seem um, or hopefully would be very impactful uh, types of uh, therapeutic approaches. Yeah, Greg, thanks. I mean, and, and thanks to you for all the great work you're doing, not only taking care of patients, but also helping, uh, helping you know, us all study these uh, medications. I know you've, you've played a critical role in some of the remdesivir trials. Um, one, one quick comment about hydroxychloroquine. You covered it well. I just don't think there's the evidence yet to to, to know whether it's efficacious or not. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm a little torn. It's an old friend of mine. I've treated a lot of lupus patients with it through the years or rheumatoid arthritis patients with it. Um, but, um, I think the, the evidence is just not there yet. I think with remdesivir, I think there's enough evidence that it, you know, especially the hospitalized patients are, are getting it. But, you know, in terms of, you know, where are we going in the future with treatments? Um, you, you know, there, there's a spectrum of disease. I mean, um, a lot of people, you know, are getting infected. Um, most of them do okay on their own. Their immune system is is able to fight the infection, but it's a small percentage who get very sick and go into the hospital. And the, the, the disease sort of shifts from a viral infection to really, really a profound uh, inflammatory infection. It This situation, it almost looks like an autoimmune disease with the inflammation, destruction of the lungs. So you see a few things going on out there therapeutically. Um, so there are some direct antiviral approaches like remdesivir and some new things coming on the on the horizon. Um, and then there are anti-inflammatory approaches. So there, there are some companies are trying um, antibodies that are used for diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, um, um, you know, and trying those in trials. Um, and then other companies are trying sort of pills that can block um, some of the signaling of, of uh, in the cells in the immune system and hopefully trying to calm down the inflammation. And I think down the line, we're all, you know, the, we're all rooting for the companies that are working on vaccines to come up with the uh, good vaccine therapies. That's, that's probably quite a ways away, several months away, um, or may, maybe more realistically looking towards end of the year or early next year. But those trials are ongoing in the interim a few other approaches are getting tried. Um, you've, you've probably heard about uh, um, therapeutic plasma being tried. So, so from patients who've recovered um, from the infection, you can take their their plasma um, and actually um, infuse it into another patient. And the protective antibodies that that patient made will help that patient um, fight the infection. In theory, uh, we, we still need more data to see how well that works. But the the early results look encouraging. But um, but uh, I mean, that's problematic from the standpoint that, you know, the recovered patients can only give so much blood and um, you need a lot of blood from a lot of recovered patients. So there are some limits to how many people we can treat down the line. So um, another approach that actually our company and other companies are taking is to is to develop an antibody therapy to, to fill the gap until vaccines are around. And this is actually to take blood from patients who are who have recovered from the infection and actually 
you know, get the DNA sequence of the antibody and, and make a medication out of it. And that's, that's one thing we've actually done and started some clinical trials um, about a week ago. Um, and that there we have less limitation in terms of what, what we can make. We, we can make, make quite a bit. And um, it's sort of an enriched antibody that we know works really well against the virus as opposed to sort of a mixture of antibodies from a recovered patient. So that's an approach where trying to fill the gap until vaccines come along. And, you know, maybe it'll be even important even after vaccines come along, because not not everyone is necessarily going to respond well to a vaccine. So um, that, um, you know, that, that that's something we're working on right now. Um, it's a great collaboration, though. It's great to work with closely with Greg on some of these uh, clinical trials and, and, um, and some of the scientific thinking. I, I will say that, you know, we, um, again, with, with AJ, we've developed a study for survivors of, of COVID-19. And I found that among the survivors that are willing to donate their blood in, in the name of science, there's a solidarity, there's a esprit de corps that, uh, and, and, and very uh, unselfish to, to say that, you know, I want to step in and, you know, I've, suffered somewhat from COVID-19, I've recovered. And now really for the greater good, I think that if my blood can, you know, offer a window uh, or, or an answer um, to the suffering uh, for those with COVID-19, then, you know, I found that uh, among those that I've approached for the study, you know, they're all in and it's, uh, it's really heartening to see. And, and again, with sort of these, you know, very um, multidimensional approaches, very dynamic approaches, drug discovery, uh, accelerated pathways to to get to the other side of COVID nineteen. Uh, I, I I find it very enriching, um, and it's a it's a good space for for you know us to to be in right now in in our career. But I think when you see the face of COVID nineteen um, in, in our patients, you really understand how important it is to to try to you know move up the timeline um, in order to hopefully get these effective therapies in there because really as AJ alluded to, we're, we're not going to turn back the tide and, until we get some form of herd immunity. And that would either mean that we have a whole bunch of people. It's going to take probably about 80% of people to have some degree of immunity to COVID-19 to get back wow. to normal, to get back wow. to what we would call phase five, which would be, you know, uh, basically a, a restored country to, to where, you know, we, we, we have our sort of comfort level in, in our lifestyles. And, um, and we're just uh, quite a bit of a ways away from that herd immunity um, where either patients are going to have a lot of infections. And if they get infected, they usually recover with immunity and, uh, Sweden is a good example who who've really they've they've sort of taken the step to say we're going to, you know, not completely shut everything down. We we recognize that there's going to be infections. We think that with those infections that and again, as AJ alluded to, most people, you know, aren't suffering um, the severe consequences. Um, and then once they recover, then, you know, and again, this this virus is very easily transmissible. Uh, we have. Uh, what we call a uh, like an R not number, meaning like how many infections if one person is infected can transmit to the other, and that and we've seen in, in several different countries that that infectious rate is probably two to three times when one person has it will will actually then transmit it to two to three different persons, wow. and so you know there there are some areas where they've 
tried that, you know, sort of as a kind of a, a, as a social policy to say that we're not going to completely shut down. We know that there's going to be infections. And then, but even with that herd immunity rate, let's say in Sweden, where it might be 15 to 20%, we are a long ways away. And so, so the, the, the way to, to really get back to, you know, where, where we can have a vibrant society is, is really going to be through the, the, the powerful science driving uh, these discoveries for both prevention uh, and for therapeutics. It's really heartening to hear that people are coming together and sacrificing their own comfort for the greater good. And I think that is in harmony with the ethos of other movements happening right now. And I think that makes this time in history special. It's scary, but it's special. I, um, this might be a ridiculous question, but I don't really understand the process to getting a vaccine. Is there something about this virus in particular that makes it hard or, cause I just kind of thought, um, from my standpoint as someone who knows nothing about biology that like people already have the genetic, the code of the virus and that it's just a matter of testing it. Um, but is it, is it not that, is it that this virus in particular is harder to come up with a vaccine for? I'll, I'll feel this first and then, yep. and then hand it over to the eminent immunologist, uh, Dr. AJ Narula. So, you know, we have experience in trying to develop vaccines with coronaviruses. And, and even back in 2003 with SARS-CoV-1, that was the original, you know, um, more of an isolated epidemic um, with, with SARS, but again, very uh, severe, um, actually far greater mortality than SARS-CoV-2. The, um, it, it takes usually several years to develop uh, vaccines uh, against uh, viral infections. And there was momentum at the time. And then when we were actually able to control uh, SARS-CoV-1 uh, or SARS uh, um, itself, it wasn't as transmissible now as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. That was one of the reasons why we were able to contain it, um, first containment and then, miti- and then mitigate the, uh, the ongoing transmission, is that we kind of lost momentum for that vaccine development. And, and unfortunately, we, we might have lost uh some of the, um, I, I guess, some of the some of the um, iteration that that goes along with developing uh, vaccines, the trial and error um, that could have gotten us to a point where perhaps we could have accelerated the vaccine development. Now that with SARS-CoV-2, um, you know, and then whatever type of vaccine that we d- developed for for SARS itself back in two thousand three, the you know the reason why we're confronted with viral challenges almost on a daily basis is that the, you know, viruses are tricky. Uh, viruses want to survive. And, and the way viruses survive is that, is that they make slight changes uh, or drifts um, in the way that they are able to invade our cells and able uh, for their, their proteins on their surface to attach to the lining of our cells. Um, and so anything, you know, that was developed back in 2003 for SARS-CoV-1, that virus has moved 25 to 30% as far as evolving in diversity. And so anything that, again, we may have applied 2003, it's not going to work now. So that's a little bit of a barrier. Um, 
and overall, it just, you know, it usually takes a little bit of time and uh, uh, one to to actually figure out if certain approaches are going to work. And then once you figure out something's going to work, then you have to make sure that the safety profile is right. Uh, you don't want to cause more harm than good. Um, and then it's going to take thousands of, of, of volunteers to go through these trials uh, to make sure that, you know, we have the, the adequate protection, the adequate immunity to then deploy this on a, on a worldwide scale. So, you know, a, AJ's, you know, uh, he knows the type of um, uh, scientific determinants, you know, quite exquisitely. And so he could probably, if you want some of the finer nuts and bolts of, of vaccine development, he can speak to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, and, um, you know, uh, I'm far from a expert on vaccines. It's not something that um, I'm working on right now, but certainly have followed this literature pretty closely. Um, I mean, just one comment about this this particular coronavirus. I think Greg captured it well, but it's been a pretty formidable opponent from the standpoint that it, that it is very able to spread. And um, there were earlier forms of coronavirus that actually had very high um, mortality, but they weren't quite as stealthy at this one at spreading. And I think it's sort of the period of um, the long period of uh, asymptomatic, uh, um, long asymptomatic period where the virus can be spread that's made this um, very transmissible. And that's caused a lot of the problems of the planet over the last few months. I, I will say, Natalie, that I'm, I'm optimistic we will develop a vaccine for this. I, th I think uh, normally it takes years. I think the um, you know, the work is really being accelerated dramatically by some of the collaboration. And to my mind, there's nothing special about this virus that we won't be able to develop a, a vaccine. Um, there have been other viruses in our past, like HIV, that um, get transmitted in a different way, um, you know, by blood or other fluids that um, you, you're able to have better control over the spread, um, you know, than a respiratory virus here. But at, at the same time, they're actually smarter viruses in some ways than a coronavirus because they, they do mutate more. And, and, for example, we've never been able to develop a vaccine against HIV, even though we've been able to develop really great combination therapies to keep the disease um, manageable. But but I, I do think we'll succeed at, at developing a vaccine. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think the work is underway. There are some very novel approaches, including um, RNA-based approaches to developing vaccines. So um, I just hope the work can be accelerated and we can get it done within a year or so, which is significantly faster than the normal wow. time period for developing a vaccine. Yeah, a year from now would be, that's, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, it's and I think I think the the goal is even quicker, but um, but you know, wow. and I think several. It's good that several several companies, universities um, are collaborating to work on this. Um, the government has obviously um, put together Operation Warp Speed, um, so it's uh, there is a lot of collaboration going on, and and there's there's numerous efforts. We we can only hope that one of them, one or more of them, succeeds, and we have a couple of a couple of more effective vaccines. But we'll see how things play out. I mean, we're looking at, uh, again, kind of a, a very uh, broad array of, of tried and true approaches to like what we call heat killed viruses, um, sort of live viruses that are not transmissible, that generate an immune response to then what AJ referred to as these nucleic acid based or, or RNA type um, uh, vaccines. So I think to, together with uh, really this full force energy uh, and collaboration both within the private sector and the government sector and, and hopefully worldwide. I mean, I, I, I do hope that 
you know, we in the U.S. I mean, given our talents that that we can contribute to to this, um, you know, international effort uh, towards uh, towards an effective vaccine. I I, I think with that with with uh, again, sort of the all all the heart and soul that we can all pour into it. Uh, hopefully, we would get there. You know, within a year. Wow. Um, okay. Well, that's good. That's really that's exciting to me. And then I guess the only other thing that could excite me would be as someone who may have to get on airplanes and fly to Tampa Bay a lot or Tampa um, and go to football stadiums and all that. Um, I, I Could you guys just talk to me about the potential that antibody testing would reveal that maybe a lot of more of us have had it than we realize? And what would that mean if I had the antibody, for example, would that mean I'm immune and can't spread it? Or, or what do we know about all of that? Well, I, I think that when you take a look at, and this, these are called what's called seroprevalent studies. So sero means serology, which basically means antibody responses. And when you take a look at large areas, let's say in, in Southern California, um, in, um, in other countries in, in European countries, um, to, to look at what is the percentage of people that actually have antibodies here in the U S it's very low. Um, Oh, wow. It's probably, you know, two to 3%, um, in, in, um, again, uh, concentrated areas where you're able to look at people's blood uh, and then look for their for their antibodies. I know at one of our one of the medical centers that I'm affiliated with, um, and so we we did um, healthcare worker screening. I, I got screened. I mean, I've been fairly exposed, and right. I, I, I'm antibody negative. Uh, my wife, who's a dentist, think about that. You know, I mean, that's. Cool. Being, you know, being taking care of patients where, you know, you're aerosolizing a lot of, of basic, yeah. you know, of, of oral fluids. So um, she's, she's antibody negative. I mean, I, I think what it shows is that if you do the pro- proper social distancing and you do like in the healthcare field, what's called PPE, uh, the personal protective equipment, that, that, that those mitigation strategies work. And so we've been doing the, you know, we, it took us a while. I mean, we fell behind, unfortunately. Uh, in order to recognize the importance of social distancing and, and the importance of, of mask wearing. Um, but, the, but it does work. And so by working, it means that many of us do not have those, those antibodies that with, with asymptomatic uh, infection that, that then would confer uh, immunity and protection. And so that, you know, I, I'm, you know, for you, Mike, I mean, it, if you look around and you're on a plane and, you know, you got a hundred people on a plane, uh, you know, the, the middle seat's hopefully empty uh, but you know, maybe only, you know, a handful of people, you know, might, might have protective antibodies. So we're, we're still going to be in a situation where, you know, we're going to have to protect ourselves, um, really until we get to, to where we have herd immunity or, or effective or effective vaccination strategy. Uh, that, so the zero pre- what bottom line is zero prevalence rates here in the, in the U S are rather low. Yeah, no, totally agree with everything you said, Greg. I mean, I, I think in the end of the day, um, you know, what does it mean to be antibody positive? Uh, uh, you know, we need more data. I, I, my suspicion as an immunologist is that it probably will be protective for those who've been exposed. Um, um, but we do need more data to confirm that it may not be a hundred percent protective. And in, in, in certain folks who are at higher risk, you know, immunity can wane. But um, 
um, just based on the way things have played out, um, you know, in the last few months, I, I suspect most people will be antibody negative and all the distancing will be needed. So it still poses challenges for all of us who travel for our work and so on. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that I was antibody positive, right? Because I, I, sure. I, I agree, I yeah. agree with Adrian. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, um, I, I think there is there is uh, protective immunity to some degree. I, I think when you take a look at um, the data coming out of, of let's say South Korea, where if a patient um, is recovered from from COVID nineteen. Uh, and let's say even if they develop some vague symptoms at some point, two to three months down the line, and even if you have a positive uh, COVID test again from that, you know, that harpoon that goes through your nose to, to try to uh, get the right test to see if the virus is actually present. Um, even if that is positive, that just may be sort of a dead virus. And those persons, they cannot, they, they have not shown to transmit SARS-CoV-2 to anybody else. So that, that really means that they're not transmissible, probably meaning that that whatever symptoms they have, um, it's probably not a, sort of a, a reactivated infection. So we, I, I, I agree that I think there's, there's a certain degree of protective immunity, but we don't really know how long that lasts. Um, and hmm. I, I just, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get to do, you know, any type of, you know, let's say, you know, touchdown dance, you know, uh, when I found out my test Hmm. result. So, so let's say like we all had a friend who liked to high five kind of, you know, (laughs) really closely, inappropriately, (laughs) maybe even after his alleged team loses. I, yeah. If that guy were antibody positive, then he could actually I'm continue to engage in it. I'm, 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 I'm in. I'm in on the high five, you know, yeah. with that. If that guy is not, not antibody positive, he needs to be locked down for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Unfor- unfortunately, that may be AJ's, like, literal responsibility. Right? Yeah. Yeah. AJ, 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 year by year, that has been his responsibility, and that's uh, – yeah. that, that's uh, – <laughs> That exceeds his uh, his brain power for and, and physical type of uh, restraint uh, on most occasions. Yeah, I'll just clarify that, that that we're not talking about me. It's somebody I have personal yeah. responsibility for. So we all we we are all friends with someone who we love dearly, but he is probably he probably has given more high fives, most of them unsolicited, than. Probably any living Probably human. Probably any living human. He met all of my yeah. college friends once when, yeah. uh, yeah, he dropped he dropped off some gifts for me, and uh, I shared them with a lot of my friends, and we all hung out, and everyone received multiple high fives. And were, they all were, they, were they in bottles? They were bottled gifts. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. So that's a good segue. Why don't you? We want to ask you guys about college because I know AJ, you have two kids in or well, one will be one will be yeah to you yeah. see. And then two of my brothers, um, one will be a junior and then one, oh, wow, he'll be a senior. One will be a senior and one will is an incoming freshman at another UC. And um, I just know that my college experience was not COVID friendly <laughs> at all. Yeah. From what I've observed of your guys' college crew, that's certainly not COVID friendly. That's the whole point, right? I mean, the whole point of college is that uh, we should never think uh, or or would visualize that it would be uh, COVID um, kind of uh, competent or COVID complicit. 
<laughs> right. What would college be without face licking? And that's yeah. just in the rare event that, you know, we win a big football game or something. But yeah. Yeah. but no, I mean, like, AJ, I know you're you're thinking about like I am and like many of us, you and Lisa are thinking about, you know, will you send Sanjay? Will Michael go back? Uh, what What are your thoughts on all that right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really prominent uh, in our mind as our uh, second son going to college is going to go through his, his virtual uh, high school graduation in a few days. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm optimistic that there can be some return to college um, this fall with the, with the appropriate measures. Um, you know, Greg may want to comment more on this. I mean, one fortunate thing is the college age group and demographic, they tend to do well with this. Um, obviously you don't want anyone to get infected, but um, um, you know, I think, I think some of the things that will be helpful is if we have good testing in place, um, you know, um, you know, good tracing of, of contacts that would, that will help. But then of course there'll have to be, it, it'll have to be a bit of a hybrid experience, you know, a hybrid live and virtual experience with some appropriate distancing to make it feasible. But I mean, this is th- this next year, I do think there'll be some return closer to normalcy. And I think that, that we will be able, kids will be able to return to college in a safe and responsible fashion, but probably in a very different way than in the past, hopefully by the fall of, 2021, it'll be much, much closer to normal. I mean, another thing that gives me some optimism is that I do hope there will be some therapies that, that, that are shown to have a positive effect available by then. So, in a in that worst case scenario where even a college, a college kid gets and gets the virus, there's something to offer him, which of course there hasn't been until recently. So, um, I'm just hopeful that that'll, that'll take place too. And and could you just talk about where you think the testing and tracing will be by the fall and, and how that would work for a college kid specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's sort of going to vary from geography to geography. I know some some academic institutions like our, our alma mater and some of the UCs have, have, have been pretty proactive about putting that in place and and have a plan to make you know testing readily available. Um, and, and have a track and trace uh, um, strategy in place, but it's it's probably going to vary from location to location. I, th- I and, do and, think this and is, is that yeah. is that cell phone tr- like how how are they going to literally trace? Yeah, that's that's one of the technologies that, that sort of I've heard of that that could it's, take place by, and which it, brings up the new issues, of course. But Greg, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, so so I mean, the reason why uh, South Korea was able to. Contain. I mean, South Korea never really got to mitigation. They did containment uh, hmm. through aggressive testing and contact tracing. And the contact tracing, you know, was was the technology that enabled it. And, and it was really through cell phones um, and, uh, and and other types of shoe leather uh, type of contact tracing too. But so I, I could I could see perhaps you know uh, an immunity passport. Uh, of those that are actually then antibody positive, um, and then those then who are who are negative for COVID nineteen, if they happen to then test positive at some point, uh, then hopefully with aggressive contact tracing, you know, we could have some sort of um, you know kind of phase four reopening uh, in the in sort of the college environment um, yeah. where we could you know maybe have gatherings of like fifty people. Um, or, or fewer and that, and that would be kind of in some sort of classroom setting. So, yeah. uh, 
but yeah, but it's going to, you, you know, again, it, and that it takes a, a lot of resources for contact tracing. So I think with cell phones, if we as a society, we're going to allow that. And I, I don't know if, if, you know, our, our civil liberties would allow us to do that, you know, our beliefs in our, you know, uh, of our civil liberties, but, you know, a lot of civil liberties, you know, when there's a state of emergency, you know, for the greater good and for public health, um, we have to make sacrifices. And, and so it, it, we have examples again from countries such as South Korea and Singapore that have been able to pull that off. So, I, and I, and, and of course I think, you know, these colleges, you know, these liberal arts types of, um, uh, higher learning institutions are, would, would be the place, uh, as, as certainly, a, uh, to, to try to, um, Put that in action. Yeah, I mean, so, some of the areas of obviously there's sort of several levels of concern. You know, one is, uh, you know, how can you resume normal classroom activities? But then, I mean, we all know what the college experience is like. So you get to the settings where college students get disinhibited and uh, aren't <laughs> as responsible. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's uh, there, yeah, yeah, there's certain devices that accelerate the velocity of carbonated beverages. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that, uh, in, in sort of a shared type of communal setting, I think that, that, that might have to go the way of the, the handshake, unfortunately. I really want to keep yeah, the high I, five. I think, we, I think that's, that's the, that's five, the beer right? bong I think he's talking about. <laughs> beer bong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, and then, well, I, you know, and then sports specifically. So I have a lot of sports questions selfishly and and I know that we're we're watching soccer starting in Germany now um we're we're going to be watching hockey and basketball and possibly baseball before we get to football but um you know I know there're a lot of different scenarios and in college it's very tricky because you you know, the prospect of asking student athletes to do things that you're not having the general student body do in terms of exposure. That's a whole other mm-hmm. uh, other issue. And then the NFL, which I think probably on paper can be the most mercenary and say we don't need fans if need be. And these guys can make a business decision and, a, and a, you know, in theory, there could be some quarantining and all that. So I guess um, I guess the first question to ask would be. If the NFL right now is saying we're full speed ahead, we're going to have training camp in July and we're going to have a full schedule starting in September. We'd like to have fans, you know, and we're open to, you know, altering that model. How how realistic does that sound to you guys knowing what you know now? So I've let let me just take a step back. I've actually been following the Bears for the past month, that, and that would be the Doosan Bears from the Korea Baseball Organization (KBO). Uh, Not not the Golden Bears, not the California Golden Bears. Bears. I mean, we're talking about about OJ Wan, second base. You know, Park Kun Woo. You know, right field. So, uh, I got I got to get my Bears fixed. So anyway, um, (laughs) you know. KBO, what they're doing is that, you know, they're putting like the, they're putting the cardboard cutouts of like Mike Silver in the stands, you oh, know, um, Can I have one? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I, I don't see us going back to, to, you know, these stadiums that are filled with fans. I, there's just I cannot see it at all. Like in it basically September, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, they're again, Look to countries that have been able to kind of get to the other side. Look to South Korea. I mean, you're able to field a team. Okay. All these guys are getting tested. All right. You get your team in there, but you're not going to have fans in there. 
I, I, I just do not see that un, until we have, again, effective therapeutics and vaccines. So 2021, perhaps. But, wow. but that, I mean, I, I just think that's kind of dangerous territory um, yeah. to, to tread in. If, I, if, we accept, if we expect by the end of the summer that we, we'd have like stadiums of fans. And, 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 you, and you guys know how football is with that level of close contact. So, so I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. I mean, let's say you don't quarantine entire teams, you know, for the duration of the season, which would be extreme. Let's say you're just testing frequently as they enter the facility and the stadium. Um, I mean, isn't it very possible that an out, a mini outbreak could happen in a given team or context? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly possible. Um, you, you would hope that, you know, these are, these are sort of young, healthy athletes that they would do well with it, <laughs> um, but it would probably, there'd probably be a lot of transmission, um, you know, so I, I, I totally agree with Greg, by the way, I don't, I, I just don't see anywhere close to normalcy this fall and whether it's empty stadiums or, you know, sparsely um, attended games with, with spacing, that may be the best case scenario. I'd, I'd love to be proven wrong on this and for there to be great progress, um, you know, with therapeutics that, 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 that there's a comfort level going back to normal, but I think more realistically late 2021, even though as a longtime Liverpool fan, I will take them re- winning their Premier League in a couple of weeks with no, no fans in the stadium. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> you'll be singing for sure from home. I, I promise you. You'll, you'll, you'll never walk alone. We'll be singing in my house. Myself and my son, Michael. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, do you do you think that, um, you know, in terms of where testing will be by the fall, I, I've heard sort of these, you know, different assessments of like testing could be as easy as spitting into a receptacle and getting an instant result or um, it's going to be so common that everybody can test all the time seamlessly. Is that overly is that overstated? Well, you know, right now, so, te- I mean, basically testing with the the harpoon through your nose for a brain biopsy, that's probably not going to work for uh, widespread testing. So, yeah, there's innovations. I've heard about sort of, you know, kind of sucking on a lollipop and then popping that in an instrument to, to get a readout. Um, saliva certainly is, is moving along further. Um Yes, I, I think we need to have, you know, better, more rapid, uh, what we call point of care tests uh, that are uh, that are accessible in kind of many different, you know, areas and spaces, uh, in order for us to 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 figure out when we can start to come together in large gatherings. Yeah, yeah, I think I think technology will help you. We'll get to testing that's more sort of more patient friendly if you will um you know and that'll help things so so i'm i'm optimistic here that we'll 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 get to a better place on testing and obviously it it, it, there's a lot of room for improvement we've been so um yeah it's really helpful that you guys are clarifying a lot of this because for me and my household personally it can be frustrating and confusing to listen to our alleged uh, leaders. And that being said, I love Fauci. I think he's really smart. I want to know what you guys think. Should we be listening to Fauci? So let me, let me, let me just kind of say that 
Are you talking about the the OG ankle breaker from Regis High School, nineteen fifty eight, point guard captain? That's who you're talking about. Tony he Fox? was he he was the point guard of yes. his high school. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. So he's <laughs> so he's kind of a natural born uh, leader. Yeah. He is. You know? I mean, so he's uh, Tony Fauci's a national treasure. I mean, Tony Fauci survived the Reagan years. You know, with from from where we were with with HIV, HIV AIDS, and so. Um, those are the wow. voices that we need to be listening to. Absolutely. So during the Reagan years, I, I, I mean, I, you know, Natalie, you don't remember this, but, you know, HIV was very stigmatized and marginalized early on as a, you know, a disease that primarily was affecting the gay population. Ronald Reagan was not super progressive in that area. So, Greg, I can imagine that he had to to try to attack that in that context in the early 80s must have been really daunting. Ronald Reagan never mentioned the word AIDS until 1985. It took him uh, five years. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that was that that was what Tony Fauci was fighting against. And he's he's fighting again. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment on Fauci because he's uh, he's, a, you know, he's actually been a long time here, hero of mine. And, you know, he's a immunologist. I've actually been in the same room with him at immunology, immunology meetings. Um, uh, he's, he's, he's a fantastic guy. I spent a year at NIH myself and earlier part of my um, career, but um, you know, he, in, in the 1970s, actually a quick, quick anecdote, um, you know, there's a, a disease uh, called ankovasculitis. It was a fatal disease, hundred percent mortality. Oh. And Fauci came up with the first effective um, treatment for that. Um, uh, I was very lucky many years ago to participate in developing a, a subsequent treatment for that same disease, but he's been a long time hero of mine and obviously an amazing efforts in the HIV area. So we should be listening to Dr. Fauci and, and what he has to say. He's, he's a brilliant scientist and a, a thoughtful man. <laughs> so that's, that's okay. Good. That's awesome. That's what, that's the vibe I get. So I would yeah. like, would like more Fauci, less uh, elected official in those contexts. Um, I, so I, before I let you guys go, I just, I know Natalie has one more too, but um, so I, it sounds like if I'm getting on airplanes in a few months and flying off to stadiums that may not have fans in them, to cover NFL games, I'm going to be, I'm going to be taking a very, very cautious approach um, barring the, you know, getting lucky on the antibody test. I, I, it sounds like masks and social distancing and um, a lot of, you know, hand washing and, and everything that we've, we've come to, you know, to try to do these last few weeks. Is there anything I'm missing there? Or is that pretty much what reality is looking like for, for the short term? I mean, you're talking about the new normal. So it, and it's going to be with us for, for quite a while. Um, the masks do a good job. Uh, the hand washing as well. Very important. Don't touch your face too much. Um, it's one thing. I've had to sort of kind of dial it back for me um, and uh, and then the social distancing. So, so I mean, if you're looking at a top three, you're looking at mask, uh, masking, hand washing, and then the social distancing. Uh, and then just kind of the, the other kind of other habits that, that we fall into, we've just kind of got to restrain ourselves. Yep. Yep. Well covered, Greg. Yep. 
You know, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, in at Cal in the 80s, um, one of the drinking games that we played where you could kind of add your own rules as you went along. Um, our, our mutual friend, Greg Haywood, liked to add a no touching your face rule specifically to mess with his freshman <laughs> year roommate, Mark Yamashita, who... Yep. He had this incredible proclivity for touching his face. And, and, the, and the more he consumed, the more he wanted to touch his face. And so it was a vicious cycle. So it's hard for me to hear the touching your face without thinking of our friend Yama. I, I That's exactly I who I was thinking of. Yeah. I, and I, Mike, this is the first time that I've recognized that uh, Greg Haywood was such a savant back then as far as <laughs> – <laughs> as, as, as to how we're living our moments now. It's funny because Greg Haywood, um, you know, Nally's younger brother, um, my middle child is named Greg. And Greg Haywood just she asked me last night, how did Greg how did Greg Haywood react when you told him your son was named Greg? And I said, well, he was beaming until I told him the hard truth that we actually named him after you. So, there we go. you know, that's right. He's never it's always frustrated him. But he, he had like a he had a few minutes of just like uh, uh, unmitigated glory and then and for the listeners the our our friend who loves to high five is named uh gordon gotcha he is a uh he is a sweet sweet guy and and i i know this is particularly hard for him because the thought of him trying to restrain himself from high-fiving it's like i i it's just like seeing a puppy sitting in a little cage begging for attention and an owner. It's the saddest thing I could possibly imagine. But they've given us hope that Gordo will be able to high five eventually. When I can high five Gordo again, confidently, I will feel good about the world. Yeah. High five. Yeah. For us to uh, bring back, uh, bring back the soul to our lives. (laughs) Well, you guys, seriously, it's, you know, we're really, really proud of you and, and, you know, really heartened by what you guys and your peers are doing. And, and, uh, you know, thank you for indulging us, not only on this podcast, but, you know, you have to hear from me reasonably often anyway, with my freak out questions. But I, um, we, we really, really appreciate you being on the Pass It Down podcast. And I know Natalie had one last kind of complicated medical question to throw at you. Yeah, um, just because I haven't really had the chance to talk to any experts in this specific field. And I feel like you two, given your backgrounds, are uniquely situated to answer this really analytically and expertly. So here it goes. Um, who is in possession of the Stanford Axe? That's Bears. We okay. got the axe! <laughs> Long time coming, but it's back. That's right. It feels and it's, so it's been very mo- It's been very motivational uh, during some of these 20 hours day, twenty hour days to watch that Chase Garber's 16-yard uh, run. I'll say that. I just know that if you could see me right now wearing my Las Malvinas uh, shirt, which is a whole long story, but you, of course... Uh, got a first-hand appreciation of that. And um, 
I just, our first podcast guests were Steve and Maddie Kerr. Steve is a uh, converted Cal dad now. And Maddie, of course, went to Cal with Natalie. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I also, I'll leave with this. We, um, you know, the night before the, the real social distancing reality was setting in across the country, uh, was the opening night of the Pac-12 basketball tournament. And um, Cal was in the process of shaking off a few years of rough, uh, rough basketball play and and upsetting Stanford in the first round. And I get a text with about five minutes to go from Steve that says, how does it feel to know that the last sporting event ever played on U.S. soil will be a Cal victory over Stanford? And, you know, the fact that he's the coach of the Warriors made it, you know, an even funnier text. But I immediately freaked out because he knows better than to jinx it. He has texted me a couple of times, the Cal Oregon game, you know, the, the Ivan Rab sophomore year where it looks like Cal's about to win and they collapse and – uh, he, you know, he's always appalled by how bad it really is to be a Cal fan. So I thought that he jinxed us, but blessedly, that did not happen. Yeah, let let me bring this full circle. So Mike, basically, Steve texted, "How does it feel?" <laughs> and then uh, last time I saw Natalie was t- uh, 2016 down at Coachella for Desert Trip. So hopefully, <laughs> we get back we get back to those times. Yeah, I'm thinking that a massive festival featuring of old people that <laughs> could there be a worse situation? <laughs> well, the next old Jella will probably yeah, it'll probably be like Green Day or something by the time we you know, but uh yeah, well listen you guys, um we love you and we appreciate you so much. Thank you.